O Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to join me in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. Luke, chapter 19. And at the end of the service, we do have an individual who will be joining. So, Kathy, we'll have you join at the conclusion of the message. Just make a note to myself so I don't forget that. Um, Luke chapter 19. I want you to follow along as we read this text. Luke 19, beginning in verse 45, and then we'll read down into chapter 20, verse 8. Luke 19, beginning in verse 45. So follow along as as we read these verses. And he, that's Jesus, went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein, saying unto them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And he taught daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do. For all the people were very attentive to hear him. And it came to pass on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes came upon him with the elders and spake unto him, saying, Tell us, by what authority doest thou these things? Or who is he that gave thee this authority? And he answering said unto them, I will also ask you one thing, and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we will say from heaven, he will say, Why then believed ye not him, or believed him not? But, and if we say of men, all the people will stone us, for they be persuaded that John was a prophet. And they answered that they could not tell whence it was. And Jesus said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. That question that's thrown out there in verse 2, by what authority do you do these things, is sort of the central question of this text, and I think a question that continues to be a vitally important question for people to answer. What's the authority? You know, we kind of get this statement in our world today, you know, that works for you, great. You know, people will hear, oh, you're religious, well, I'm glad that works for you. Just not, that's not for me. Religion's not for me. I tried church as a kid, but it just doesn't, it didn't really seem to work. In today's world, if there's one thing that we sort of seem to agree on, is that everybody is entitled to, quote, their own truth. You'll hear people say, you need to go live your truth. How many of you have heard a phrase like that? Live your truth. Or, well, this is my truth. I saw just on Facebook in recent weeks, someone says, let me tell you my truth. My truth, your truth. We all have our, our own versions of truth. On TikTok, thousands passionately will tell their audiences to boldly go be you and to live your truth and sort of be authentic to the real you, the self that's sort of trapped inside your body. Activists proudly shout, my body, my choice. It's this idea that's very pervasive today is that truth is subjective, that we all sort of get to come up with our own truths, our own truth, our own ideas of what reality is. To the point that people even can come along and say, you know what, I, I'm actually the wrong gender. The wrong gender was, was assigned to me, and I'm going to change that and come up with my own reality. All of that comes back to this fundamental notion that I get to come up with my own truth, and that the truth, that truth is what I feel on the inside, right? Truth is sort of what I define, what I come up with where people who are living in this malleable world where we take the world around us like clay and fashion it into what we want it to be, 
rather than walking into the world as it really is and being like, hey, what is the architecture here? Now, the irony of these statements is too great. When people say truth is subjective, that itself is actually an objective statement. You're saying, this is true about truth. Okay, is that just you saying that or someone else? Like, how do we come up with that? When people come along and say lived experience is authoritative, well, that's a who says, right? What's the basis for claiming that? Or when someone says, no one can judge me, that's actually a really judgmental statement. They're just the implosions of contradictions here are, are, are too much to pass over. But I don't want us to just sit here and think this is misguided thinking that exists on the darker corners of TikTok and Twitter, right, of the secular world in which we live. Many professing Christians have bought into the same kind of thinking. Many prof- professing Christians base their beliefs in their own experiences and feelings, I feel like God is telling me to do X. God told me to do Y. My question is, where? Uh, Open the book and show me where. What I feel, what I think. That's the basis for what I think. Or I, I just can't imagine a God who would do X or Y. Again, rooting the authority of what we believe in ourselves rather than in a word from God. We're living in a day where there's many cultural debates, and I see far too many Christians timidly saying things like this. Well, I'm just saying that for me personally, abortion is wrong, leaving open the door to the notion that maybe it could be right for some people, rather than just, is it right or is it wrong? Or, I'm not judging anyone, but I'm personally opposed to homosexuality. Again, what's the problem? It's not based on what I personally say. All of these questions are are similar questions to what the Pharisees, what the religious leaders were asking Jesus. What's the authority? Says who? Is it just your own authority, or is it what the rabbis say? Is it tradition? You see, ultimately, we all have some kind of authority for why we believe what we believe, for how we determine what is true. Some people will base what is true in tradition. Well, it's always been said or always been done that, and that's what sort of the the people Jesus encountered. The rabbis have always said, or the chief priests have always set the rules in the temple. Who are you to roll in here? Others will base what they think is true on just subjective feelings in the moment, and it can change from one day to the next. Others will determine what they're true based on sort of rationalism, logic. Logic says this, and logic says that, and so therefore these things, by the way, both logic and feelings are gifts of God. I'm not denying their role in our discerning the world around us. But listen, logic can be misguided. We can have wrong premises. We can have logical flaws. Our feelings can misguide us. Tradition can be wrong. Others today will appeal to authority. All the experts say blah, blah, blah. Or, because all the experts say, I'm going to just throw it out the window. It's it's the same kind of thing, an appeal to authority, because we're going to say they're wrong. I'm going to set myself up as determining what is right or wrong in my own eyes. We see that happening in both the church and outside the church. Let me give you a statistic that I think is absolutely stunning. In 2011, 30% of evangelicals, Okay, 30% of evangelicals, that's a really low number, said that an elected official who commits an immoral act in their personal life can still behave ethically and fulfill their duties. Turn that around, most evangelical Christians would say character really matters, right? 70%, to to put it positively, would say 70% would say an elected official's morality and character is important for determining whether or not they'll do a good job. In 2016, it was completely reversed. Now, the Bible did not change. 
in saying, well, certain behaviors are actually okay in certain situations. What changed is the politics changed, and so evangelical Christians changed their morality to line up with their politics. We can look at the world and be like, well, they have a subjective view of church, or of, of truth. We need to look at ourselves and say, am I grounding what I believe is right and wrong in the authority of Jesus Christ? That's the issue that is raised in this text. By what authority are you doing these things? What kind of authority does Jesus have in your life? This text confronts us with the the authority of Jesus Christ. In these chapters, Jesus presents himself as the authority. He makes no apology for it. And beloved, our faith rises and falls on the question of Jesus' authority, on the accuracy of his claims about himself. Now, we're in the middle of the Passion Week. We're actually starting a new series as we go on through Luke's Gospel, looking at the Passion Week. Last week, we saw the Sunday of the final week of Jesus' life, the triumphal entry. Where we find ourselves now is on the Monday of the Passion Week. Jesus comes back into the temple, he runs into the money changers, he casts them out, and then Tuesday we come into the confrontation that chapter 20 outlines for us. And the confrontation comes down to the authority of Jesus. So according to this text we're going to look at today, Jesus' authority confronts all other authorities, be that my personal feelings, be that what the culture says, be that what the polls say, be that what... The CDC says, be that what anybody says, the authority of Jesus confronts all other authorities. Particularly in three areas, and I'll give them to you. One of them, we see Jesus' authority to cleanse, to cleanse the temple in verses 45 and 46. We see his authority to teach, showing that he is authoritative over truth. And then we see his authority to confront in chapter 20. So authority to cleanse, authority to teach. Authority to confront, showing that he has complete authority over worship. He has complete authority over all truth claims. He has all authority over humanity itself. So let's look at his authority to cleanse in verses 45 and 46. And he went into the temple. Now, Mark's gospel tells us that on Sunday he came in, he looked around, he left. He's coming back in on Monday morning. On the way in, he curses the fig tree, which is... Uh, a symbol of the coming judgment on the nation of Israel. And he comes into the temple, which is sort of the symbol of Israel's relationship with God. Luke tells us the story of the, the account here of the cleansing of the temple in very brief words. Okay? Mark has 62 words in the Greek to describe it. Luke does this in 25 words. He went into the temple and began to cast them out that sold therein. So he goes in, there's people buying and selling in the temple As he comes into the temple, he's greeted by bleeding sheep and clinging coins and by noisy negotiations in the court of the Gentiles. This was this huge expanse of pavement that was set aside in the temple for non-Jewish worshipers of Yahweh to come and worship. They couldn't go any closer, but this was the place that was set aside for the nations to come and worship God. That was one of Israel's purposes, is to represent God to the nations. And here the place that should be about mission, should be about proclaiming the glory of Jehovah, has been turned into a shrine for mammon. Now it's Passover. There's, there's tens of thousands of pilgrims descending on the city of Jerusalem. If you're traveling a long way, you're not bringing sheep with you, so you need to buy some sheep to be able to offer them for the Passover celebration, to eat them for the Passover celebration. And so naturally, uh, a, market, a sheep market springs up to help meet the need of these pilgrims. Something else, when you come to the temple, you're supposed to pay the temple tax. Problem is Roman money had the picture of who? Caesar on it. The last thing you want to do is bring an image of Caesar, who presents himself as a god, onto the temple mount. 
So you've got to change out that Roman coinage for Judean coinage that does not have the offensive image of Caesar, lest you be guilty of idolatry. So what you've got is we've got to sell sheep, we've got to change money, but they bring it into the very temple courts itself. And what Jesus says here is you've made it a den of thieves is they're not doing just a fair trade. No, they're getting a large, healthy commission. They are price gouging. So you're basically robbing people by charging exorbitant prices for these sheep, by having an a, 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 a exorbitant ex, uh, exchange rate. And all of this is happening on the Temple Mount, which means it is happening under the sanction of the religious leaders. These aren't just a bunch of entrepreneurs who showed up and started selling stuff on Temple Mount. This would have had to be sanctioned by the chief priests, who, as we can imagine, are probably getting a nice little slice of commissions on every sale, right? There's, there's money changing hands in many ways. The chief priests are making good money off of it. The money changers are making good money off of it. And who loses? Well, all the people who come to worship God, who are being charged exorbitant rates to do so, and the Gentiles who should be able to come and worship. Imagine trying to have your personal devotions in the middle of Walmart. Right, they've turned the temple court into Walmart, and it's crazy, it's chaotic. Think Walmart maybe on, you know, right before a big football game, and everybody's in there buying their, you know, buying their, their queso and their chips and, and all their stuff, and it's just crazy, and you're trying to do your devotion. Imagine that going on in church while you're trying to pray. So they're sacrificing their mission to the Gentiles in order to make money. That's what's going on. So what does Jesus do? He comes in as the king of Israel. We saw last week, he comes in as the true and better king. He's heralded as king. He weeps over the city like an Old Testament prophet. And now he comes into the temple as priest. He is prophet and priest and king, the anointed Messiah of Israel. He comes into the temple not as a pilgrim who is awed by this wonder of the ancient world, but as the very Lord of the temple. When Jesus first came into the temple back in Luke chapter 2, remember he was a 12-year-old boy, he comes into the temple, and he's there teaching everyone, and, and Mary and Joseph are heading home. They think he's in the group of pilgrims going home. They realize, oh, he's not here. They run back. What does he say? I must be about my father's business. Right? He recognized that the temple was his father's house. It is God's house. And the chief priests and the rulers had turned it into their house. He's coming back not claiming something that is not his. He is coming into the temple claiming what is rightfully his as God. Now floating around in the background is the text that Ryan read for us. Malachi 3 verse 1. It says, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come into his temple. So they say, We're longing for the Messiah. We're longing for Yahweh's presence. Boom, he shows up. And he shows up in his temple to do what? To judge and to cleanse. That was what that Malachi text talks about. This is what Jesus is doing. He is Yahweh himself, God himself, showing up to his temple to judge and to clean house. So what does he do? He, he begins to cast them out. Uh, other gospels tell us he's flipping over tables. I mean, this is a, quite, a, 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 quite a scene is being created here. He's, get this out of my house. This is my house. What are you doing here? Like, imagine if you got home today from church and there were a bunch of people just hanging out in your living room, like eating all your food, and they had messed everything up, and they were dumping soda all over the couch. You'd be hey, guys, just hang out. This will be fine. Now, you would get out. What are you doing in here, right? Like, you might call the police, or you might take matters into your own hands. But if there's a bunch of people who are just hanging out in your house, engaged in criminal behavior, let's add that to this. They're, they've got some drug, dealing, drug deals going on in your living room. You're not just coming in there casually, hey guys, do you want to take this? No, you're going to run him out. That's Jesus' mentality. He comes home, comes to his house, and it is corrupted. 
with all this commerce going on. It's corrupted with all of this robbery going on. Now, verse 46, you say, you know, they ask, by what authority are you doing this thing? Well, he actually cites his authority. He doesn't just come along and say, this is really bad. I'm Jesus of Nazareth. I've got a lot of people who like me. You should leave. No, he grounds what he says in Scripture. He says, it is written, Jesus' authority that he claims for himself. Yes, he has intrinsic authority as Yahweh, as the Messiah. But he grounds his authority in the written word of God. He puts together two passages. One of them is from Isaiah 56, verse 7. My house is the house of prayer. Now, Isaiah 56 is about how God takes the outcasts, the foreigners, those who normally would not be able to come into the temple of God, and how through the, at some future time from Isaiah, God is going to include them in his people. And he's saying the temple is to be a house of prayer, and Isaiah adds this phrase, for all the nations. So Jesus comes into the, the court of the Gentiles, the area for the nations, there's all the selling going on. This is meant to be a house of prayer. That's God's purpose for the temple, a place for people to come and worship him. And then the second part of the quote, but ye have made it a den of thieves. This comes from Jeremiah chapter 7. Now jump back to Jeremiah chapter 7. Because this is one of those things when Jesus just sort of says the phrase, everybody's sort of able to pull the scripture up in their minds. They understood the Old Testament scripture far better than we do. So if I say we hold these truths to be self-evident, you automatically fill in that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator. You, you fill in the rest. You, you, you know the Declaration of Independence well enough. You know the thing, to quote one of our presidents. Uh, to, to be able to pull that up with just a phrase. You've made it a den of thieves. Pulls up in people's mind the this, this sermon that Jeremiah preaches in Jeremiah chapter 7. Look at Jeremiah 7 verse 2. God says to him, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word. So here's Jeremiah standing in basically the same place earlier iteration of the temple, proclaiming this message. Say, hear the word of the Lord, all ye Judah, that enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Trust ye not in lying words, saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Trust ye not in lying words that cannot profit. Now look at verse 11. Is this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, saith the Lord. But now, ye go even unto my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. Jeremiah is saying this. You guys think you're safe because you have the temple, that God, God would never judge us because we got the temple. We're, you know, we're a believing nation. We're special. God's going to bless us. He says, no, don't trust in a building like a good luck charm. So if your life is wicked and you're bringing all of this wickedness and all of this robbery when you come to worship, God will judge. He says, look at Shiloh. That was where, where they used to have the, the place where the, 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 the tabernacle. The temple of Jeremiah's day, of course, was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and the temple of Jesus' day was destroyed by the Romans. So when Jesus says, you have made it a den of thieves, he's not just saying, well, there's bad business practices going on. He says, you guys are no better than the generation that went into exile in the days of Jeremiah. Judgment is coming. Jesus and Jeremiah are telling this, God does not need any institution to fulfill his mission in the world. 
And when the institutions that are designed to fulfill his mission in the world become corrupt, he has no problem handing those institutions over to judgment. I think it's easy for us to have a false sense of security. Oh, we're Christians. We love Jesus. This is great. And you know, God needs us to be able to represent him in the world. 1 Peter 4.17 says, Judgment must what? Begin at the house of God. Again, a quote from the Old Testament from Ezekiel. Judgment begins with, with God's people. We can look at the sins of our society around us. That Man, that's evil. And we would, be, we would be correct. But how much credibility do we have when the exact same sins are occurring within the people of God? How much credibility do we have when the same corruption and abuse and greed is occurring within the church in the name of Jesus as is occurring in the world? The temple no longer exists. But we are told in Ephesians chapter 2 that the church of Jesus Christ is being built up as a dwelling place, a temple for the living God. Not this building, not this physical structure, but the people. God dwells in the midst of his people like he did in the temple of old. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20 says, Do you not know that ye, you all, plural, the, the, the church of Jesus Christ, you're the temple of God. We're the dwelling place of God. And God calls his people to be holy. When we come to worship God, God insists that we come and worship him in the beauty of holiness. And when we come in to worship, we've not prepared our hearts, we've not confessed our sin. We're offering God corrupted worship. We come along with unrepentance in our life, and we approach the table of God, the table of the Lord. We celebrate communion. It says you're drinking damnation to yourself. God takes it incredibly seriously how we go about worshiping him. Not just what we do when we gather, and I'm not even talking music styles or any of that subjective stuff. I'm talking about the condition of your heart. When we come to worship the one true God, the holy God, he insists upon worship that is offered with a pure heart for the right reasons. When we gather and we are here to sing, you realize we are commanded by God to sing. He didn't say, if if you've got a good voice, sing. No, he says, sing, like offer praise from my heart. And I come along, well, I've got a better idea. I'm... I'm not going to sing. I'm not going to listen to his word. I'm going to kind of do my own thing. I'm really worshiping myself. Or when I come to church and say, I, my preference is for this sort of thing and that sort of thing to happen, I'm putting myself at the center of what should happen. Our gatherings when we come should be all about God, not about ourselves. It should be about God-centered worship, not man-centered frivolity and entertainment. Let's think about this. Evangelical, Christian, evangelical Christianity is very big business these days. Big business in the temple courts, big business in the church of Jesus Christ. You can turn on TV channels to get prosperity preachers on TV who are making money the central presentation, who are bilking people, desperate people, out of money they can ill afford to part with and promising, God will bless you. I guarantee you if Jesus Christ were here today, he would be flipping over some tables. Pastors become fabulously wealthy through book royalties and salaries. Worship services become highly produced programs of entertainment and self-promotion designed to simply make us look good to the culture. And what's more, the show must continue no matter what. In the name of the cause of Christ... Churches will tolerate massive greed. In the name of the cause of Christ, churches will promote talent over character. You're you're, you're really good. I know your character is a little sketchy, but you're a dynamic speaker. In the name of the cause of Christ, churches cover up abuse and silence of victims. 
In the name of the cause of Christ, churches try to keep sin. Hush, 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 lest we look bad to the community. In the name of the cause of Christ, churches give charismatic leaders a pass when they fall into grievous sin. Beloved, there is sin in the church of Jesus Christ in our, in our time. And frankly, a church that is shot through with corruption and sin is no church at all. It is nothing more than a religious institution. He who removed God's presence from Shiloh and pronounced judgment on Jerusalem's temple will not hesitate to remove the lampstand of an unrepentant church that tolerates sin. It is time that we as believers in Jesus Christ take sin within the church seriously, as seriously as God takes it. But it's easy to talk corporately about sort of the church generally. Let's get specific individually. You are the temple of the Holy Ghost. God dwells in the midst of his people. Also true on a personal level, when you become a believer in Jesus, you become the temple of God. What's true on a corporate level is true on a personal level. You are the dwelling place of God. That means God has the right to clean house. You say, my house, my rules. Jesus can say that coming into his temple. He can say that coming into his church. And he says that coming into your life. This notion we have today that you can become a believer in Jesus and, quote, invite Jesus into your heart without any moral change in your life is baloney. If Jesus comes into your life, he is going to change stuff. He's going to kick the drug dealers out of the living room. Right? He's going he's to make adjustments. He's going to make it a fit dwelling place for his holy presence. He determines how his dwelling place is to be run. So what sin is in the courts of your temple? If Jesus were to clean house in your life, if he were to show up in your life, and everything is laid bare before him, not just what people see around you. Listen, we're all good at putting on the show. We come to church, and we look nice. We, we dress nicely. We, we are respectful. But who you really are, right, when you're at home, who you really are in your thoughts, who you really are in what you love. If Jesus were to clean house in your life, what kind of sins would he need to throw out? What kind of tables would he need to tip over? What ungodly entertainments do you delight in? What sinful pleasures do you treasure? What moral filth do you pump into your soul? What wickedness wallows in the temple courts of your heart? Listen, Jesus, as the Lord of the temple, has every right to move in and to to clean house. And maybe today you know exactly what it is in your life. To say Jesus is the Lord of the life means something, that he rules over. He says, my house my rules. He has authority to cleanse. Cleanse his church. Cleanse our lives as individuals. Say, what right? He's the king. He's the Lord. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your soul, which are God's. If you're a Christian, you do not belong to yourself anymore. You belong to Jesus Christ. And every thought and every area of your life is under his lordship and under his control and is to be used for his glory and his honor. Now, I know this is hard-hitting, smack you in the side of the head with a two-by-four, and I think it's meant to be that way. That's how it was for the people of Jerusalem when Jesus came in and started turning over tables. I don't want us just to walk out of here today being like, well, that was a cool message, man. Pastor Sam really let it rip today. Like, no, really, what is going to change in your life? What money changers need to be thrown out of your temple? I want to move on to the second area where Jesus has absolute authority, and this is authority over truth, his authority to teach. So he has authority to call the shots as far as worship goes. He says, this is the way that God is to be worshipped. Money changers in the temple is a no-go. But now we get into verses 47 and 48, and these are sort of summaries of what's going to happen through the Passion Week. And he taught daily in the temple, 
The, 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 the way this comes across in Greek is, and he was continually teaching in the temple every day. So here comes Jesus to the final days of his life before he goes to the cross. He doesn't work miracles. No, what does he do? He teaches. That should tell us something about what is most important to him is the declaration of truth. Yes, his miracles are important as a witness to truth, but the declaration, the teaching of truth was of immense importance to Jesus. By the way, it was to the early church. What did the early church do when they gathered? They continued in the apostles' doctrine, okay, in teaching, in the opening of the Word of God. That's why we think the Word of God should be central in what we do. We have the teaching of Jesus. We have the apostles' doctrine. It's important. Now, Jesus basically comes in, he cleans house, and he turns the temple into one massive classroom. And I think we can picture him on the sprawling court of the Gentiles with huge throngs of people listening as he teaches. Now, notice what he's teaching. He was teaching daily in the temple. And what we have, um, let me see, where is this? Uh, teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests, they were trying to destroy him. I guess it didn't get translated here. I, I, I stare at the Greek all week, I'm sorry. It says that he was teaching and preaching the gospel. All right, The content of his teaching was not just, guys, here's a moral way to live. Here's an ethical way to live. But here's the good news. Here's the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus' message was not, try harder to be a better person. His message was not, guys, here's some ways you can do a better job following the Mosaic law and make God happy. His message was, repent, the kingdom of heaven's at hand. I have come to deliver sinners who cannot save themselves. The gospel, the declaration of the good news of, of salvation. You see, it's easy to turn Christianity into just sort of a, a moral framework. Hey, live this way. Don't do these things. I would dare say that if we were to poll you know, non-Christian friends and neighbors, say, what's Christianity about? They would be like, well, from what I know about Christians, you, you know, probably shouldn't drink. You need to go to church. That's an important thing that Christians do. Um, Homosexuality is bad. And wait to have sex until you're married. I think a lot of people would be like, that's sort of what they think Christianity is about. By the way, those are all things that the Bible would affirm. But Christianity, first and foremost, is about what Jesus Christ has done to save sinners. It's what Jesus has done to rescue us from our sin and to make us right with God. It's about his death on the cross in our place because we have not and we cannot keep God's law. It's about what Jesus has done in rising from the dead for people who are spiritually dead and cannot give life to themselves. That's the message that Jesus was preaching on the temple in the temple courts, not All of y'all who are trying to keep the Pharisees' rules, just keep it up and you might just make it. But rather, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. You must be perfect in the eyes of a holy God. And the only way that can happen is through a gift of God's grace. Now, notice the impact of his teaching. There's big impact. The scribes, the Pharisees, the chief of the people. Now, that three-part division tells us that this is the Sanhedrin, the, the supreme sort of religious council in Jerusalem. It was made up of these three groups. The chief priests, okay, they're the ones who are in the line of Aaron who do all the sacrifices on the temple. Then you get the scribes. Those are the experts and the exegetes and the scholars in the Old Testament law. And then there's the chief of the people. Chapter 20, we'll call them the elders of the people. These were like the, the lay leaders within the city of Jerusalem, the important citizens. And they together made up this council of 70 people who were the supreme religious council of the land. They all come together, and they're trying to find a way to destroy him. They 
are angry. They're furious at Jesus coming into their temple and tipping over tables and shutting down their business making, their, their money making venture. Jesus was not good for their local business. But it says in verse 48, they could not find what they might do. They, 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 couldn't, they couldn't find a way to carry this out. Why? Because all the people, the common people, so all the, elite, the elites are like, we hate Jesus, we want to get rid of him, he's bad for business. But the average Joe from Judea, the average guy from Galilee, they love the message of Jesus. He's giving them hope where before all they got from the scribes and Pharisees is condemnation. He's giving them grace where before all they got was rules and regulations and you've got to do this and you've got to do that. So verse 48 says all the people were very attentive to hear him. Literally, they were hanging on him hearing him. They were hanging on his every word, sitting on the edge of their seats, taking notes. They wanted to get this. The impact of his teaching on his enemies, well, Jesus is teaching, and the result is they want to destroy him. Listen, the message of Jesus will divide humanity. The message of Jesus is not, he's a really nice guy, and Jesus is super understanding, and he gets you in your sin. There's a, there's a campaign going on right now called He Gets Us. They're running all of these ads. But Jesus understands what it is to be human. And the problem with it is they're spending $100 million but never actually giving the gospel, which I'm kind of missed opportunity. Jesus does indeed sympathize with our weaknesses as a human being, yet without sin, right? He doesn't sympathize with sin. But he knows what it is to be human. And I think the goal of it is to say, look, look, Jesus is a really nice guy, right? Let's, let's, let's improve the image of Jesus. They actually said in their advertising, we want to make Jesus the, the biggest brand in town. No, Jesus is not a brand, right? He's not an image that we craft and try to improve for the world. He's Lord. And his teaching will divide humanity into enemies and to those who will hear his voice. So Jesus' friends in verse 48, the people, they were very attentive to him. One of the ways you can know, am I a true child of God, or just someone who comes to church, is do I have a hunger and thirst after righteousness? Jesus said this, my sheep, what? Hear my voice. It doesn't just mean you hear audibly, but hearing is the idea of receiving his messages, and they follow me. The, the word of God is something that is determinative and, and transformative in your life. That's one of the ways you know you are his sheep, not just because you said you're one of his sheep. Not just because you asked him to be one of your sheep. You're his sheep. If you hear his voice and you follow him, that's the evidence that you are his sheep. So the common people are hanging on his every word. They're listening to him. They're there for divine truth. Now, over in chapter 21, uh, just over a page, verse 37 and verse 38 gives us a little bit of another summary of what's going on during the Passion Week. And in the daytime, he was teaching in the temple. And at night he went out and abode in the mount that is called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to him in the temple for to hear him. People aren't just kind of like there for the show, like, oh, let's see Jesus do some miracles. They're there for the message. They really want to hear him. We should not get the idea that all of Israel just rejected Jesus. It was the leaders who rejected Jesus. There was a great number of people who loved him enough to get up early to come and hear his word and to listen to his message. We're saying that Jesus has authority to teach. He has authority over truth. I started the message talking about this whole idea of my truth and your truth. Truth is what Jesus says it is. Truth is what Jesus says it is. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and God said, 
and there's reality. Reality itself is based on what God has said, right? He spoke the universe into existence. We don't get to come up with our own reality. We don't get to come up with our own truth. We don't get to come up with our own morality. It's not malleable. We don't get to say, well, I actually think I'm a different gender than what God made me to be. No, God is the one who determines reality. God is the one who determines right and wrong. God determines what is truth. Jesus says, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. Every word of God is true. Which means this, the Bible is not just a nice religious book that we should reverently read from time to time. This should be the supreme authority in our lives. Authority of what is true or not true, it's not based on what I feel, it's not based on logic, it's not based on reason, it's not based on tradition, it's not based on polling, it's not based on what my tribe says versus a different tribe, it's not based on what the elite say it so it must be true or the elite say it therefore it must be false, it's based on what God says. We have an authoritative word from God. Now, if this word is true, we ought to hang on every word. We can say we believe that the the word of God is true, that Jesus' word is authoritative. But I think the implication of this is we listen to it attentively and obediently. I think we all like to try to multitask. It's really easy to do with all the apps and everything like that. Where I, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a little bit of scripture, and I'm also going to, you know, you know, play some little video games on the side and do these other things and have the radio going. Listen, I would say, I would suggest that if the words of Jesus are to be hung upon, every word we're supposed to grab onto, they deserve and demand our undivided attention. Just a practical matter: come to church and put the, the phone on airplane mode so you're not getting little notifications dinging in. So you can, I want to hear this. Listening to God's word attentively will mean setting time aside in your daily life that is reserved purely for reading God's word. Maybe in the morning, maybe at night, might be at lunch break, but there's time that you're setting aside to say, I want to attentively listen to God's word. I want to be intaking God's word. When you come to church and the word is being preached and the word is being taught, I always find that I can listen better if I'm active. We put an outline in the bulletin, and that's there so that you can be active in listening and taking notes because you listen so much better, right? You get a pen in hand. You're going to trace the argument, jot some key points down. That's there not because my sermons are worth preserving. It would be like 100 years from now. I've got these notes from a Sam Sinclair sermon. But to simply help listen better so you can understand what God's word says. It's going to mean listening obediently. You can come week after week and hear sermons. But how is it changing you? How is God's word changing you? Be like the person who looks in the mirror and is like, oh, that's nice, then walk out the door. Little tool we're giving are those discussion questions that are just ways to think about how the message applies to your life. It's just a start. It's just a tool to help do that. But every time you hear God's word, ask this question, how do I need to change? How do I need to change? Like if you read the Bible and you can't answer that question, you've not really read the Bible Right? You've not really let the Bible read you. The Bible challenges us. It transforms us. Which really leads us into this, this final area of authority that's presented in this text. And it is Jesus' authority to confront. His authority to confront our sin. I know this has been a, a, a more confrontational text, a more confrontational message. But we get this confrontation that really explodes in chapter 20. And really, all of chapter 20 are going to be these confrontations with the religious leaders. They're going to come along with questions that they have sort of come up to try to trip Jesus up. 
and make him look foolish and ultimately get him to say something heretical so they can get rid of him. They're trying to assassinate him effectively. So this first question they come up with here in in chapter 20, verses 1 to 8, is this. What's your authority for doing this? Now, if Jesus says, well, I I don't really have the credentials, the authority, and be like, oh, look, you're a loser, right? This is sort of like coming along and saying to someone you know doesn't have a college degree, so tell me about your college degree. Oh, you don't have one. Well, I do. Look at all of my... That's sort of what they're doing is, show us your credentials. We've got better credentials. We went to rabbi school. We're priests. We're in the right line. We've got credentials you don't have. The other thing they're hoping to get him to say is they, they know he's the Messiah, is if they can get Jesus to publicly say, I am the promised Messiah, they'd be like, hey, Romans, this guy here is pretending to be king. Get rid of him. That's eventually what they do, right, is we have no king but Caesar. So they're trying to get Jesus into a lose-lose. If he doesn't tell them what his authority is, then they can say, well, you don't really have the right credibility to do this. We have the credentials. You sit down and, and, and just be quiet in the corner. Or they can say, you're an insurrectionist, you're a dangerous individual, Rome, take care of this dangerous person, and they get rid of Jesus. Jesus is not a trained rabbi, he's not a recognized priest. What kind of authority does he have for himself? That's the question. By what kind of authority, what sort of authority do you have? Well, the answer is messianic, divine authority. And who gave it to you? God gave it to him. But here's the reality, is they are not interested in finding out the answer to that question. Jesus' presence simply being in the temple was, a, was confronting their pride. Jesus has authority, and the, one of the first areas he's going to confront is our pride. That's why you see them in verse 1. They come, Jesus is teaching, and then they come with all of their fancy robes and their big sticks and their goofy hats. You know, you can picture the scene, swoosh, 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 coming in through the temple courts as Jesus is teaching. And sort of ambush him in the middle of his sermon. By what authority are you doing these things? They're threatened by his presence on the Temple Mount. They're threatened by him being there and cutting into their business. The very presence of Jesus confronts our pride. It confronts our thin notion of thinking we're really in control of our lives. So this question, by what authority are you doing these things? Is their hurt pride trying to defend itself? We like to think that we run our own lives. We bristle at any critique of our personal choices or relationships. You get people who say, you know, I know what God's word says, but I'm going to do what I want to do. So Jesus confronts our pride. He has authority to confront, and he'll confront our pride, confront our status, call us to humility and repentance. But really, we get into this question. We We read this text earlier. Jesus does not walk into their trap. He knows it's a dishonest question. They don't really want to know the answer. It's a trap. So he uses a common rabbinic way of arguing. The rabbis would do this. You answer a question with a question. And the implication here is, you answer my question honestly, I'll answer your question honestly. Uh, And here's the thing. He asks them, okay, John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it from God or, or from man? If they get the answer to that question right... They just answered their own question, right? Because you think about John. What was John's message? There's one coming after me who is mightier, whose shoe latchet I'm not worthy to unloose. John constantly was saying, look at the Messiah who's coming after me. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If they say John is really, you know, his baptism, his message, his ministry is divinely sanctioned, comes from God, then it would follow to say that what John said is also true. It would answer their own question, by what authority do you do these things? Well, the same place where John got his authority. That's the sense of the question. 
Now Jesus also in his wisdom knows this puts them in a dilemma. They, and and they, they, go, they now go off in sort of a side huddle and they're whispering, okay, if we say it's from heaven, he's going to be like, well, then why didn't you get baptized? And why did you not believe John's message? Why did you not repent and then believe in the one that John pointed you to? If it's from heaven, why aren't you believing it? Because answer, you want to be your own boss. Option two, if we say, well, it's really from man. John was just an imposter, a fraud. The people are going to kill us because they think very highly of John. Notice what they're not doing. They're not doing what is the truth. They're not asking, what is the right answer to that question and what should we do with that answer? So another area where Jesus confronts us, he confronts our pride and our status, but he confronts as well our dishonesty and our hypocrisy. You see, there's people who don't actually want to know the truth. I've got all these questions and doubts, and I'm just asking questions where really what you're doing is trying to evade the searching and all-encompassing authority of Jesus. Raise questions that aren't really honest questions, but are decoys. They're ways to try to wriggle out of the staggering moral demands of the gospel. But ultimately, what is Jesus confronting? He's confronting our unbelief. They, they, they said it themselves. If, he, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then did you not believe him? What Jesus is confronting, what Jesus is exposing in this little encounter with the religious rulers is you didn't really believe John the Baptist. You don't really believe what I am teaching. The issue here is not whether or not I show you my credentials. The issue here is you have seen my credentials. You have seen my miracles. You have heard my message, and you reject it. You will not believe. You don't understand who I am because you will not believe who I am. In their deliberations, they recognize they're in a dilemma. And so they take the easy out. They answered verse 7, we don't know. It's not because they don't actually know. They know what the truth is. They know John was a real heaven-sent prophet. They know that Jesus is truly the Messiah. They have seen the evidence firsthand. But better to say we don't know than to really acknowledge that Jesus is the Lord. They were more afraid of the truth than anything else. Yes, they're afraid of the people, but they're afraid of the truth. They don't want to lose their status. They don't like the implications of truth. There's many, many people today who claim to reject Jesus because of some major intellectual hang-up. Say more often than not, it's not an intellectual hang-up. It's a moral hang-up. It's they don't want to acknowledge the implications of the lordship of Jesus in their lives. The authority of Jesus in our lives will always confront our sin. Always. Jesus is infinitely and perfectly holy. And when we have an encounter with him, we will always be revealed to be individuals who fall short of the glory of God. People who need grace and people who need mercy. And the good news of the gospel is mercy and grace is available like a flood for those who believe in Christ. And it's not just a one-time thing, good, I got my eternal destiny changed. No, every day we revel in the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. Yes, our sin is always confronted but his grace, his mercy is always more than enough. And listen, the Jesus of the Bible confronts sin. He confronts all kinds of sin. Sin on his left hand, sin on his right hand. 
He confronts the hypocritical piety of someone who is outwardly moral, and he confronts the distorted confusion and perversion of someone who's morally deviant. Both are confronted by Jesus, and both need mercy, and both need grace. The person who's sort of outwardly moral can begin to think, oh, here's the standard, I can keep that, and the person who is not will say, I just give up. I can't keep the standard. The reality is we need Christ. We need his mercy. And tragically, the religious leaders walked away. Tragically, they refused to acknowledge him as their king. This is going to set in motion the events that will carry on for the rest of that Tuesday and into Wednesday. And then by Thursday, they have found their way to get Jesus. The crowds, we've got to get him when the crowds aren't around. Judas is our guy that will lead directly to the cross. So the question for you and for me to wrestle with, what does the authority of Jesus mean in your life? Beloved, it means so much more than just coming to church. It means that Jesus has authority and sway in every area of our lives. Does he rule in your marriage? Does the lordship of Jesus mean something in the way that you manage and use your money? Does the authority of Jesus dominate your worldview, how you look at the world, how you look at reality? Does his authority routinely confront you in your pride, your dishonesty, and your sin? Listen, if the Jesus you believe in never confronts you in your dishonesty, your sin, your hypocrisy, you're probably not believing in the Jesus of the Bible. May we learn to acknowledge the authority of Jesus. Would you bow with me?